0: Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: The truth is, I am not very happy with this convention business. The day of the liar, the demagogue, and the silly is on. So said President William Howard Taft. What happens when a party reaches a convention without a decision? How does a brokered convention work? i look at a few past political conventions that were brokered or seriously contested, maybe instructed to understand what could occur. You couldn't find a better example of a party that botched its chances for getting the White House than the 1924 Democratic Convention. As delegates with straw hats and buttons, sashes and banners cheered for two very different visions of America, the party's chances melted in the hot New York City July. Hurling jeers and insults at each other, conducting ballot after ballot after ballot, 103 in all, Over nine days, the Democratic Party of 1924 demonstrated one thing to the nation. They couldn't make a decision. Worse, it was all broadcast on the relatively new medium of radio. A debacle, Time magazine said. Yet, not everyone was displeased from the White House One eager radio listener was tuning in. President Calvin Coolidge, no doubt pleased that his opposition was melting away. The owners of Madison Square Garden in New York City had made the party a great offer, free use of the hall if they could sell food and drink to the 1,098 delegates coming from all over the nation. The garden then as now held prize fights and, very often, the circus. This was an ironic twist not lost on commentators as the convention would drag on over the nine days. It's not the same garden building where the New York Knickerbockers play. It's the old building off Madison Avenue in the 20s, which is now a life insurance building. History can be like a Matlock episode. We know how it's going to end, but the fun is how we get there. So far, at least those who know the story of the Nine days of exhausted, thirsty, hungover delegates duking it out. It's worthwhile to consider that this didn't start out so bad for the Democrats in 24. Calvin Coolidge was a new president, having taken over after Warren Harding's death. He was respected, but not popular the way that he would be in term two. He'd just been renominated in Cleveland, and that was only the second time in American history that a party had nominated a president who assumed the presidency after the president's death. That convention had the appearance of a fat cat club, and despite efforts from progressive Republicans, the party failed to condemn the secret, hateful, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant organization that had resurged in the 1920s, the Klan. Its hatred aimed principally at blacks. But also becoming more of a nativist club, which included members both Republican and Democrat, including some U.S. senators and congressmen. Now, the Republican Party of the two was expected to condemn this organization, but they failed to have the votes at their convention. Not only that, the Democratic Party had at least a nominal frontrunner, William Gibbs McAdoo, and the party had a powerful weapon going into this election, the Teapot Dome Scandal. It's complex, but it comes down to this. For a bribe, a member of the Harding cabinet sold oil reserves of the Navy to a businessman who drained the U.S. government of these oil reserves. During the Harding administration, the Interior Secretary, Albert Fall, had, after taking a bribe from oilman man Ed Doheny and Henry Sinclair, allowed Sinclair and Doheny to take advantage of government leases, which were adjacent to the Navy's oil reserves in Teapot Dome, Wyoming, and also in California. Reserves in California, for which Ed Doheny stood to make $500 million, were discovered by a tabloid newspaper. And had Warren Harding lived, it might have ruined his presidency. There was a Senate investigation going on. It would go on throughout this election. Now, Coolidge was president now. He claimed no knowledge of this scandal, no knowledge of selling the Navy's oil reserves. Yet Ed Haney had paid for the Cleveland Convention, sat near Coolidge, and Albert Fall was also there. So when you look back at 1924, it doesn't look like it had to be the big debacle that it turned out to be for the Democratic Convention. Indeed, as delegates settled down to hear the keynote speaker, Pat Harrison, the senator from Mississippi, it was a party that had a forceful claim on government. Senator Thomas Walsh of Montana was leading the Senate investigation. It was a bipartisan investigation. Republican progressives and Democrats together investigating the matter. He had a great reputation. He was beyond reproach. Several times they offered to make him the presidential candidate or the vice presidential candidate. He wasn't interested. Convention Chair Walsh gavels the body to order. The delegates quiet as Pat Harrison speaks. 48 years ago in St. Louis, our party met. There was corruption in our government. And there is a Saturn Tilla of corruption now. Harrison was drawing a line between Grover Cleveland's presidency and the 19th century Democratic Party and their contribution to civil service reform. Mr. Chairman, as your investigation has demonstrated, Oil has become the open sesame of power and granted admission to the robber's cave. We can hear the sweet, reasonable voice of old hickory from the Blue Ridge Mountains or Monticello or St. Albans where a beloved Woodrow Wilson lies, urging us to act. Delegates led by the Mississippi delegation cheered. High ground was claimed. Oil was the issue, and Harrison made no secret and didn't neglect to mention that Tahini had used his oil money to back the Republicans in the recent Cleveland convention. When the next day, the first ballot was cast, it seemed like McAdoo's to win. He had 431 delegates. There was a 1,098 delegates. You needed two-thirds. The governor of New York, Al Smith, had just over 200. Nobody else had anything close. Convention watchers knew it was common to hold back some support by the front runner in order to show off in future ballots and scare away the rest of the opponents. McAdoo probably had more than this 431. He had a tie to the previous president. He had federal government experience. He had overseen the creation of the Federal Reserve System and was on many of the war boards during World War I. He had a support of Southerners and Westerners in the Democratic Party, and he had something else, money. A lot of it that he had earned as a corporate lawyer. Yet, it is how McAdoo got that support and how he got that money that would lead to his problems. Earlier in the year, he had admitted, when Ed Doheny had asserted, that he was his attorney for a time. The Democratic nominee? Now the lawyer for the oil men who took the oil from Teapot Dome? Little problem there. And there was another issue. McAdoo had not sought, but he had refused to condemn support from delegates tied to the Ku Klux Klan because most of the states supporting him had a healthy Klan presence. As McAdoo arrived in New York to his room in the Vanderbilt Hotel like a conquering Caesar. His train parade had already been from Chicago to D.C. to Baltimore with little stops along the way, the front rudder arriving. Papers in New York were blaring headlines about McAdoo's Klan connections. What was going on here? A party with a stellar issue handed to them, a party who had owned the government for most of the teens, now had no one to run, perhaps, a weak-field election. 1924, a term borrowed from horse races, of course. We always look at politics as horse races, probably wrongly. It means a field of no good horses, a party in factions with no authority figures. In 1924, Woodrow Wilson was no longer alive and he was the last Democratic president. VP Thomas Marshall was not active, was Giving up on politics, and vice presidents were not thought much of in that time anyway. William Jennings Bryan, the former keymaker of the Democratic Party, had now lost three times. That left a lot of little guys. The Wilson former cabinet was a place where many of the nominees perhaps could be found. Newton Baker, the Secretary of War under Wilson, Josepha Daniels, the Navy Secretary under Wilson, they both got a few votes. The party's previous nominee in the last election, 1920, James Cox, the former governor of Ohio, he got a few votes, but all of them were mediocre. That left the leaders of the two factions, urban and rural, the highest-ranking member of Wilson's former cabinet and the governor of the largest state controlled by Democrats, to duke it out. McAdoo's name was put in nomination, and cheers erupted. This is one of those old-style conventions, not unlike the circus Madison Square Garden would host. Cornets blared, an opera singer was carried by members of the California delegation and led the demonstration for McAdoo, which lasted 55 minutes. Perhaps, as happened in many conventions, this would trigger a steamroller effect, and it would all be over. Then the state of Connecticut was called. Connecticut yields to the great state of New York. Here is where perhaps to our ears the most significant event of this convention occurred, at least for us looking back at it today. Franklin Roosevelt was wheeled to the convention area, but he could only walk to the podium. As the hall quieted, they could see Franklin Roosevelt This was their vice presidential nominee from four years earlier, walking forward on crutches. Stricken by polio, this was his first appearance since he had been vice presidential candidate. The delegates didn't know it, but he had spent most of the time in between then and now at his home with his wife and mother. When Al Smith called on Roosevelt and asked him to put his name in nomination, it was Eleanor. Roosevelt's wife, that convinced him to do it. With no use of his legs. He was kind of new to this, but he had to use his upper body strength, which was formidable, to propel him forward. This was a moment in time, if there ever was one. If Roosevelt slipped, if he fell, he would have been a laughingstock. Not fit for politics anymore. History might have been very different. But he didn't trip. And he wasn't a laughingstock. Though Time Magazine referenced his arrival by wheelchair and the crutches, they reported that he showed no signs of his recent sickness and had all the vigor of his youth. He called Smith the happy warrior and placed his name in nomination. Well, you have to remember, this is Governor Al Smith's Home city. It's not the first time in American history a presidential candidate has taken advantage of that fact. He packed the hall with New Yorkers, not on the delegate floor, they're not allowed there, but up in the balconies and everywhere else around Madison Square Garden. New York City police were controlling who went in and who went out. And when Al Smith's name was placed in nomination, there was yelling, there was howling. It lasted 73 minutes. And then the crowd quieted, and then 10 minutes more. It was a radical approach. It was an appeal to the urban foe, to the Catholics. Could the Democratic Party, a party that had some Klan supporters, including in this very convention hall, be the first party to nominate a Catholic to the White House? It had done radical things before in 1896, it nominated William Jennings Bryan, a surprise. William Jennings Bryan was in the convention hall during this nomination contest. Could a Democratic Party convention surprise the country once again? The answer, perhaps, was given in the nomination of Senator Oscar Underwood of Alabama, an opponent of the Klan and a supporter of Wilson's League of Nations. When a delegate of Alabama attacked secret societies, there were murmurs in the crowd. When he attacked religious bigotry, there was a few hisses in the crowd. But when he mentioned the Klan by name, there were shouts from the pro-Klan delegates. In response, the New York and Alabama delegations led an anti-Klan march through the hall. This was important because the McAdoo supporters revealed their position. They didn't move. Get up, you Klegals, the Smith men shouted. That was a derogatory name for Klansmen. A fistfight broke out when the anti clan ralliers tried to steal the Missouri and Colorado banners. The chaos all was broadcasted on radio.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: Order was eventually restored, though the convention chair's gavel broke as it would several times during the convention. Despite all this, if McAdoo had just gained momentum in the early balloting, Might have won the thing anyway. Instead, the next few days became a fight over religious tolerance, a plank in the platform, and a plank condemning the Klan. Anti-Klan congressmen and delegations spoke out against the organization as New Yorkers in the balconies cheered on. When McAdoo supporters shouted back, shouted about Smith's support of saloons, verbal sparring got started, demonstrations and counter-demonstrations. More ballots were held. Usually with the same result, McAdoo not getting any more than that 430. He led, but not by enough. Kansas at one point switched to McAdoo, but then New Jersey switched to Smith, which put the thing right back where everyone was. By 50 ballots and several days, papers were calling it a clan bake as delegates trapped in the heat battled each other. McAdoo delegates asked to relocate the convention to Kansas City. That motion failed. There was a motion to turn off the radio. That never got any traction. Probably would have been a good idea. But a motion to condemn the Klan, which had failed in the Republican Party, now also failed in the Democratic Convention. Roll calls take a long time, and motions to adjourn were contested by both sides in many cases. So as the days were stretching, ballots were going to 2 or 3 in the morning, day 6 and day 7... The delegates from the South and the West were getting tired of paying for New York City hotels and New York City meals. The coverage in the newspaper was no longer about Smith or no longer about McAdoo. It was about how sad the spectacle was. Radio listeners found it amusing. Each time Alabama voted, they always supported, loyally, their home state senator, Oscar Underwood. And so you heard this refrain again and again as the convention went on of, Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood again and again and heard. And it came kind of a funny refrain for the radio audience and something that was repeated Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood. By day eight, ballot 100, in the wee hours, both McAdoo and Smith realized it was futile and dropped out. At this point, the nominee from the last convention, James Cox, Flew in after listening on the radio and hearing how sad the events were for the party. Tried to broker a deal. Some of the McAdoo delegates started going to John W. Davis. Davis was pretty much an unknown Wall Street lawyer. That's kind of the way he's described. Now, he had been the ambassador to Great Britain, and he had been the solicitor general for the Wilson administration. But how often did he nominate a solicitor general for president of the United States? But Indeed, that was the only nominee that the Smith people could agree on, the McAdoo people could agree on, William Jennings Bryan could agree on. John W. Davis of West Virginia became the party nominee for president after 103 ballots. Charles Bryan, the governor of Nebraska, and the brother of the great commoner himself became vice presidential nominee. Davis thanked the delegates for their supreme vitality, the understatement of the year according to time. No convention has ever repeated this spectacle. There's been fights. They've been settled in the first few days, usually well before the convention begins in most elections. 1924 led to a crushing defeat for the party. As a result of this convention, John W. Davis was actually an impressive speaker. He had several good speeches, which got some good media reviews. And as he said, he tried and tried and tried to get Calvin Coolidge to take a stand on something so he could attack it. He wasn't able to. He did, as a candidate, actually make the condemnation of the Klan that his party could never make in that convention in New York. But Davis was beaten 15 million votes to 8 million votes, winning no state outside the South and getting less votes than the 1920 nominee by several hundred thousand votes. It was a crushing defeat, the result of a weak field. Well, it appears the lesson of 1924 is learned. And indeed, politicos know about the 1924 convention probably more than any of us. So to find a 1924-like convention, we have to look in the past. When Republicans met in Chicago in 1884, they faced a problem. Who wanted the nomination for president? Though they had six wins in a row as a party, Republicans were winning all of these presidential elections then. 1884 looked bad. James Blaine, former Speaker of the House, was a contender. He made clear, I neither desire nor expect the nomination. Spend no money, he told supporters. Blaine was not well liked by New York Republicans for his role in a railroad scandal. I can't win New York, he said. He suggested General William Tecumseh Sherman, hero of the Civil War. But Sherman said, I will not in any event entertain or accept the nomination for reasons personal to myself. His brother John, maybe? John Sherman was a senator from Ohio. I will take a nomination, but I won't scheme for it, he said. The chances are for the Democrats, but for their proverbial blundering. He tried to actually get his brother, William Sherman, to reconsider. But again, the former General Sherman said, I would not for a million dollars subject my family to this ordeal. That's making it pretty clear. Blaine, in the end, got the nod, and as he predicted, he could not win New York, and he could not beat the Democrats. But my own favorite is a Democratic convention, 1868. Horatio Seymour, then governor of New York, was the chair of the convention presiding over the vote. And when there started to be some votes cast for him, he said, I want to make it clear that the chair does not want this nomination. There were votes for him on other ballots, and he said again, I repeat, I want to make it clear that the chair does not want this nomination. As he's presiding over the convention, the convention decides to vote for Seymour anyway. Seymour was promptly bested by war hero Ulysses S. Grant in that election. Eighty-four years ago, a Republican convention occurred that would not be a good example of party unity because it involved two former personal friends, Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Taft was the man that Roosevelt placed pushed maybe into the White House in 1908. To do so, he used all the tactics that an incumbent president could. He steamrolled the process, and he put his nominee through, overlooking many aspirants, like New York Governor's Charles Evan Hughes, who would later become the nominee in 1960. Teddy Roosevelt, winning election, re-election in 1904, impulsively, Teddy Roosevelt was nothing if not impulsive, said he would not run again in 1908. He could have. The George Washington precedent of serving two terms applied only to presidents who had two full terms, not a term finishing up another president's term. Teddy Roosevelt had finished up William McKinley's term when he was assassinated in 1901. But McKinley, dying in September 1901, six months into his second term, gave Roosevelt almost a full term. So it was a little bit of a question mark about this issue. Perhaps Teddy Roosevelt wanted to calm down any thought that he was seeking a kingship after winning his reelection, and made the commitment not to run for another term. Later he would tell a friend, I would cut off my right hand if I could take back the statement I made to the Associated Press. He did the best he could and picked his best friend, Secretary of War, and got him, William Howard Taft, nominated and elected. Getting your man placed in office is a kind of victory for an incumbent president. And Roosevelt won. And initially, he was happy, even as the 50-year-old president was leaving office. Ha ha, he wrote to Taft. While you picked the cabinet, I spent the morning testing rifles. For the African trip. Taft, upon taking office, was cordial. He said he appreciated Teddy Roosevelt's help. The presidency was not his first choice, but he couldn't refuse it, and it also pleased his wife, Nellie Taft, who had ambitions for him. Taft wrote to Roosevelt that he was obliged to him and his brother Charlie for the presidency. It seemed like a proper thank you. But upon his return from his African trip, the letter would anger Roosevelt. His brother Charlie, Roosevelt would tell a friend. His
0: brother Charlie gave him money. I gave him the presidency. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Still,
1: Roosevelt denied any desire to challenge the now incumbent President Taft. A grueling battle over tariffs, the loss of the Republican House in the midterms of 1910, and the lawsuit that the Taft administration began against U.S. Steel, which Roosevelt felt was an attack on a merger that he was involved with, a deal that his administration had made. He took it personally, and Roosevelt decided to enter the race. Taft, he said, was a tool of the bosses. My hat is in the ring, he told a reporter. Taft, who didn't even enjoy the office he had, had a renewed desire for it now that it was being challenged by his old friend. His wife, Nellie, had told him, You can beat him for the nomination. He'll defeat you in the election, but still, you should get the nomination. Taft responded to the attacks in a very personal way. A good friend has made statements and I must respond, he said, adding in a very unfortunate quote, Even a rat in a corner will fight. Comparing... A sitting incumbent president and oneself to a cornered rat was not the high point of Taft's political career and not the high point of presidential oratory. Roosevelt had enormous popularity, many friends, having participated in conventions in 1900, 1904, 1908. His managers sought to persuade delegates, vote for us. It's obvious that Roosevelt, and not Taft, is going to win the election. So if you want patronage, we, and not the incumbent president, the soon-to-be former president, are the ones to go to. Roosevelt had friends in western states and in New York. So the battle for delegates went south. Southern states voted Democrat nearly every year since the Reconstruction. There was no hope that the South would vote for a Republican in 1912 but in the Republican nomination contest, they were very much at stake. Federal jobs were handed out by the president. Those Republicans who operated in the South did so for federal patronage and paid back their presidents not in the general election, but in the nomination contest at the convention. Taft's political operatives, many were part of the machine that Roosevelt had built in 1904 and 1908, acted quickly against Roosevelt firing all federal officeholders who refused to produce a delegation for Taft, or who they suspected would support Roosevelt. In Texas, they fired the Republican state chair, a man who had controlled 5,000 jobs. In many southern states, you had Roosevelt and Taft delegations, both claiming to be the legitimate delegation going to the Republican convention. In 1908, when President Roosevelt was pushing through his choice Taft, He had the chance to change these rules, to have delegates chosen by the amount of Republican votes they delivered in the general election. By that standard, the South would have made little contribution to this Republican convention as they normally voted Democrat. And the Republican northern states, where Roosevelt had a lot of support, would have the most influence. But alas, these reforms never passed. Roosevelt responded. By pushing primaries in states where he had friends in legislatures, and new primaries were started in 1912. A trend that obviously continues even today. So as delegates for both the conservative Republicans and the rough riders supporting Roosevelt descended on Chicago, Roosevelt looked sort of strong. In 13 primaries, he won a million and one votes to Taft's 760,000. He had popular support on his side. But the Taft people showed no sign of budging, and things got nasty. Taft called Roosevelt a demagogue. His people said that Roosevelt wanted to be king for life. Roosevelt called Taft a fathead, and further proof that no one in history insulted like Teddy Roosevelt, called him a puzzle wit. Taft had 1,078 delegates by the estimation of the Associated Press going into the convention. Not enough for nomination, but a good amount. Roosevelt had 411 pledged to him, and there were 254 contested delegates. And then there were numerous candidates supporting home, home state favorites and unpledged delegates, and these were the ones that both campaigns went after. William Jennings Bryan, oddly the Democratic kingpin who had seen many conventions, was in the press box at the Republican convention in 1912, writing for several national magazines as an expert. I had some interesting observations. Bribes are common, Bryan said. This thing might turn on honorarium. And what was embarrassing for the Taft campaign, a black Southern Republican delegate returned $1,000 given to him from Taft, publicly saying he didn't want the money. That led to Taft people to charge that he was only doing that because he got more money from Roosevelt. Before the convention began, As some of the party bosses who were supporting Taft assessed Roosevelt's strength, a meeting was held, and the meeting typified the negatives of a divided convention. Uncle Joe Cannon, the former Speaker of the House, Elihu Root, who had been Roosevelt's Secretary of War, Murray Crane, who controlled Massachusetts for the Republican. There's only one way to go, one of the bosses said. Stick with the road we're on. I know damn well it leads over a precipice. The bosses realized that if they beat Roosevelt, they'd be more in control of the party than ever before. Democrats might win the general election, but in 1916, they'd be back and in power. conservative-controlled Republican National Committee ruled against most of the Roosevelt delegates who asked to be entered into the convention. Taft delegations in the contested states of Arizona, Texas, and California were seated. And angry, Roosevelt said, today the RNC assumed the role of the Apache and the Garator. It was the work, Teddy Roosevelt said, of the bosses of the living dead, referring to the fact that many of these bosses had been defeated in the 1910 election. When the actual convention proceedings opened, Herbert Hadley, the governor of Missouri, progressive and a supporter of Roosevelt, very well-liked man, spoke on behalf of the... Roosevelt's situation and in protest of the delegates not being seated. He delivered a minority report. As he spoke, 600 policemen guarded the stage. There was also strict attendance rules. Delegates could only come in. Once they left, they were not allowed back. The band played Dixie and the Star-Spangled Banner. There were shouts and calls for Roosevelt's spontaneous demonstrations. Some shouts for Taft, though not as loud. This convention was not on television and not on radio. Though, listening on a telephone line to the White House, President Taft could hear the proceedings. The first battle of the convention was for who would be the temporary chair. Roosevelt had a plan that he would go with an ally of Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin. Robert LaFollette was a progressive, as Roosevelt had the mantle that Roosevelt had taken as president. But La Follette didn't like Roosevelt and had no interest in helping him out. Roosevelt figured by picking an ally of La Follette's, he could win this convention battle. Roosevelt would control the chair, and the chair has power to recognize who gets to talk, who gets heard, when the meeting ends, and to rule on points of order. Very powerful position in a contested convention. But in doing so, in choosing a La Follette ally, Roosevelt had one problem. He did not ask La Follette. La Follette had no love for Roosevelt. He felt he was the true progressive and Roosevelt the usurper. He threatened to punish anyone who voted for his own man McGovern. The result was that the Wisconsin delegation was divided. Many of the delegates wanted to vote for Roosevelt's choice for McGovern, but didn't want to get punished by Robert La Follette, who was a very powerful man in Wisconsin politics when they got home. The result was that Taft's candidate, Eli Root, was elected 558 to 551. Very close vote. A convention is a splendid place to study human nature, William Jennings Bryan wrote, again as a journalist. Man in a crowd is a very different creature from man acting alone. Bryan had learned that as a 36-year-old when he took the nomination of his party. And as a 65-year-old, he would learn it again when he would face his political downfall at a convention. After a first uh, close ballot, there was talk of a compromise. Dark horses, Charles Evans Hughes, or even Herbert Hadley, who had made the minority report supporting the Roosevelt position, but who had friends in the Taft people too. Hadley discussed the situation with Teddy Roosevelt, that he was being asked to be a dark horse candidate. Roosevelt didn't say yes or no, but Hadley came out feeling that Roosevelt wouldn't be happy with him running. This might have been too bad. From all reports, Hadley was popular, progressive, just very well respected in Missouri politics, later became a university president, Uh, might have been a great president. With the convention so close, a group of delegates pledged to Taft went to a pro-Roosevelt columnist, O.K. Davis, and asked for him to messenger a deal, they would give Roosevelt the nomination for some patronage. But Roosevelt, to the surprise of O.K. Davis and many of his supporters, refused to take it. He would not deal with a convention which had not seated his delegates and overruled him in the committee. He had made too many statements in the press attacking the convention, and he was personally hurt. There was talk of the Roosevelt people bolting the convention. After releasing a statement from a Roosevelt spokesperson attacking the convention and its proceedings, it was decided that the Roosevelt people would stay and sit quietly in protest of the convention. But many Roosevelt delegates left, and so Taft was able to secure the nomination. Later, many of the delegates in that convention who supported Roosevelt went to the orchestra hall in Chicago, met there decided to form a progressive party which would contest the election and cost Taft and the Republican Party the presidency. You wouldn't think that the candidate that emerged from this Democratic convention of the past would ever have been a great president, not by the way that he was received by the newspapers and other delegates. A slippery opportunist, one newspaper said, about the party's nominee. A kangaroo ticket, a Democratic delegate said. God's greatest gift for the Republican Party, a GOP politician said. A shifter and an intellectual dodger said another paper. Still another paper simply said the nomination was bought. It might be a surprise to learn that Franklin Roosevelt was the candidate that those newspapers and delegates were speaking of as he emerged from an eventful Democratic convention of 1932. Roosevelt, who was the cousin of the former president and who was the vice presidential candidate in 1920, who struck with polio and engaged in a struggle with that disease through most of the 20s as it paralyzed the lower part of his body, forcing him to build up his upper body strength and learn to walk with the help of braces. Dreadful as the disease was, it turned out that it might have been somewhat well-timed for FDR's passion, which was politics. He kind of sat out most of the 1920s, which was a disastrous time for Democrats. And he went down to Warm Spring, Georgia, and built political connections in that state, a state whose delegation would be ironclad for him in 1932. As Franklin built up his strength and learned to walk, Governor Al Smith of New York encouraged him to give the keynote speech at the 1928 Democratic Convention. He then encouraged him to run for governor in 1928. Al Smith lost the presidential election. Franklin won the governorship, and the two soon became rivals. Smith's loss scared many Democrats. It was almost impossible for him to win the nomination again after having lost the general election in 28, But he could hope to be a dark horse at the convention, if no one else was selected, meanwhile, Franklin Roosevelt, backed by Jim Farley and Lewis Howe, had made friends in many states. After he was reelected as New York governor in 1930, overwhelmingly, he developed a good reputation. many thought he'd be the next nominee. FDR was a wet, a supporter of the repeal of prohibition, like Al Smith. But he was a more moderate. Some in the South said he was a wet, but not a dripping wet. While that helped him reach out to the vast, the different parts of the country, it also led to charges that he would take any position to get elected. There were other Democratic candidates in 1930. Newton D. Baker, the former war secretary in Wilson's cabinet. John Nance Gardner, the Speaker of the House from Texas, were also rivals. Gardner was encouraged by much of official Washington and backed by William Randolph Hearst. The first ballot showed that it was or at least should have been Roosevelt's convention to win. Franklin Roosevelt had 666 delegates. Al Smith just 201 and the rest split between the other candidates. On the next ballot, Franklin Roosevelt would earn 677 that was 11 votes more. Smith slipped under 200. To anyone unfamiliar with convention politics, and certainly as a society these days, we've all become less familiar with convention politics and how it all works, it would seem that Franklin Roosevelt was on a pathway to success. But the problem with a gain from one ballot to the next of 666 votes to 667, is that it wasn't a fast enough gain. It was like a car accelerating a bit up the hill, but not accelerating enough to make up for the gravity. Due to convention rules that go all the way back to the days of Martin Van Buren, when the ambitious New Yorker wanted to protect his institutional strength, his political chiefdoms, against the sudden popular movement that might occur when everybody got together, Van, after all, wasn't all that popular, especially with southern-western Democrats. He instituted a two-thirds rule. A candidate must get two-thirds of the delegates' votes to be nominated. That's made conventions fun for most of American history, up until about the 70s and 80s. Conventions were the decision-makers. And though they've been a plastic event since 1984 or so, more like coronations for the nominee of each party. Really, we can see the primaries as a several-month-long extension of the convention that used to happen, as their purpose, the purpose of the primaries, is to pick delegates to go to the conventions. The two-thirds rule makes it harder to win, and it forces a nominee to make deals and hear out all the factions, even the little ones, in a party. For Franklin Roosevelt... A gain of only about 10 delegates after two ballots meant that Mississippi, Iowa, Alabama, all these delegations were making noises about jumping ship. As ballots go on, delegates could still claim loyalty to him, perhaps say that if the balloting continued, in a future ballot, they might drop him. Newton Baker was apparently gaining strength. As the third ballot was conducted, Franklin Roosevelt gained only an anemic five delegates for a total of 682 votes. Jim Farley, one of his top lieutenants, was concerned. What saved the future great president was that Hearst, the paper magnate who was backing Gardner, didn't like Al Smith, didn't like him at all, didn't like Tammany Hall, the New York machine that Smith came out of and preferred, if he had to make a choice, Roosevelt to Smith. John Nance Gardner, the Speaker of the House, popular Texas politician, tired of challenging Franklin Roosevelt. In a gesture of party unity, not wanting to lose to Republicans because of a perceived disunity, Gardner said, let's break this thing up. And his lieutenant, Sam Rayburn, who would later become Speaker of the House himself, released all of Gardner's delegates. They went to FDR and on the fourth ballot he was the nominee. In a historic gesture, Franklin Roosevelt flew to Chicago and appeared in the convention floor and accepted right then and there, a tradition which now is the norm today. The day of the liar, the demagogue, and the silly is on. We may look to the Republican Convention of nineteen twenty, with Teddy Roosevelt dead. Many candidates sought the nomination. General Leonard Wood, a general from the Spanish-American War who had the mantle of Teddy Roosevelt with him, led the pack. He got a huge boost from being wronged by Woodrow Wilson, the Democrat, who had not ceded the hero general to Europe during World War II, ostensibly because he was a Republican. Frank Loudon, the governor of Illinois was well regarded and a new face, was also a candidate, as well as Hiram Johnson the progressive governor of California. In addition, there was Charles Evan Hughes, Henry Cabot Lodge, Herbert Hoover, and the senator from Ohio, Warren Harding, all of whom had participated in primaries. And Harding was not a complete dark horse. as is actually stated sometimes in history. He wasn't a candidate from nowhere. He did enter the race for the nomination. The first ballot at the convention had Leonard Wood with 287 delegates, Loudon with 211, Johnson at 133, and Harding at 65. He was in fourth, but he was in contention. By the third, Wood rose to 303 votes, Loudon to 282, and the fourth ballot was virtually the same. Republicans, who were on the verge of winning this 1920 election. After all, Democrats lacked leadership. The economy was poor. Wilson wasn't bad help. Unrest gripped America, there was rationing from the war, there were race riots, there was a threat of communists in America and the so-called Pomerades. Republicans were primed to win victory. Some feared that a bad convention would help them to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. After the fourth ballot, Henry Cabot Lodge, the senator from Massachusetts and the chair of the convention, called for an adjournment. Yes or no, he asked. The sound of no's overwhelmingly was audible. For any rational person, the crowd had voted no. But in a sign of how powerful a convention chair can be, Lodge answered, Well, the eyes have it, and ended the convention. The action moved from the convention to the hotels surrounding it. Intrigues continued now in rooms across Chicago. The boss of Pennsylvania offered Wood all of his delegates, enough to start a landslide towards him, if he would allow him to pick three cabinet members. Wood, an honorable man, refused. Meanwhile, in suite 4046 on the 30th floor of the Blackstone Hotel, George Harvey had his suite. Harvey was the media mogul, the owner of Harper's, who had built up Woodrow Wilson and switched to the Republican Party only a few years before. He held a meeting of sorts with Henry Cabot Lodge, Charles Curtis, who would be the future vice president, Senator Brandegee from Connecticut. It was not necessarily a smoke-filled room, as it's repeated in legend, and the meeting was not at 2 a.m. It was earlier, and they did not necessarily pick Warren Harding. They did, however, build a consensus that it was time to wrap things up. Harding's name did come up, and it was mentioned that he had some assets. This group was well aware that Democrats would probably pick James Cox in the 1920 election, and Harding might overcome Cox's strength in Ohio, said Brandegee. There aren't many first Raiders this year. We've got a lot of second Raiders, and Harding is the best of the second Raiders. But the meeting didn't produce a victory for Harding. On the ninth ballot, Wood and Loudon battled it out. It was on the next ballot, the 10th ballot, where Harding prevailed. Harvey later spread the story of his smoke-filled room at 2 a.m. to a friendly reporter to increase his image as a kingmaker. For his part, Harvey said, Harding was nominated because it was opposed by the least folks and people wanted to go home. It was an endorsement that would sum up the president that Warren Harding would become. By historian standards, one of the worst. Though he served a short time, roughly the same period that John Kennedy served, Harding let his friends run the White House. They ended up selling federal lands and doing all sorts of scandals while he played golf. These four conventions demonstrate how brokered or contested conventions can work. Other conventions also stand out. The 1972 convention where McGovern won the first ballot but spent so much time seating his delegates or contested in order to win the first ballot that his VP pick was flawed and led to disaster. The 1968 convention, where riot police beat protesters outside the convention hall and the tickets suffered. 1980, lack of love between Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy. Reagan's battle with President Ford in 1976. In the 19th century, the 1860 melee in Baltimore and Charleston ending with a two-way split in the Democratic Party and certainly electing Lincoln. The 1884 Republican convention that nominated Blaine, despite the dislike among many Republicans. The 1896 Democratic convention that nominated Bryan and condemned the sitting Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. But there have been a few successful, if rowdy, conventions. While Republicans battled in Chicago in 1912 between Taft and Roosevelt, Democrats didn't exactly have a friendly convention either. They had many, many ballots before picking between Champ Clark and Woodrow Wilson, and only picking Wilson at the last minute. Republicans had split in 1872 when Grant was president, and there was a tremendous defection from liberal Republicans. But the Republican Party still won. As we examine the history of American political conventions, a few trends are apparent. A little fight might be okay. The wounds of 1932 and the 1920 convention did not prevent the nominees from winning. In fact, given the plastic conventions of 1988, 1992, 1996, one might be tempted to ask if the situation hasn't reversed now. Maybe a little tussle could help the nominee. Give a little rating boost for the party. A little advertising. But like a long-forgotten disease, the memory of the 1912 Republican Convention and the 1924 Democratic Convention should weigh heavy on the minds of those who think that an all-out fight might be a good thing. If two candidates cannot be brought together to come to some kind of compromise, the fight can be broken only by a third party. Who will be the John Nance Gardner the James Cox or the George Harvey that will, for the good of the party and for their own image as a kingmaker, perhaps, intervene. Failing a good Samaritan who can work out something between the two candidates, the only possibility is that both candidates will agree to give up and settle on a dark horse, it is not a great way to pick a candidate, and certainly not a president. And-